Michael G. Walt served as a Green Beret and commanded a special forces company in the mountains of Afghanistan. He also served as a counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney and director for Afghanistan policy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And he is the author of a marvelous 2014 book, Warrior Diplomat, A Green Beret's Battles from Washington to Afghanistan. I'm proud to say he also was a non-resident senior fellow here at FDD years ago. He now serves in Congress, where he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased to have a chance to talk with him today about a range of critical national security and foreign policy issues. I'm pleased you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Mike, it's great to be with you. Um, Thank you for being here with us, and thanks for your your service, current, past, all the things you've done. um, I notice that the Biden administration has been calling Putin's war on Ukraine a, a war of choice. And I got to say, to my ear, that minimizes a, a, a brutal and blatantly illegal war of imperialist aggression. Now, as a soldier, as a diplomat, as a politician, is there a military, diplomatic, or political reason for not calling a spade a spade here? Well, look, I think the, the Biden administration from the get-go, um, let, let's just be clear, uh, deterrence and their deterrence strategy failed. Uh, NATO's deterrence strategy failed. Um, I mean, you could argue that it has thus far been successful for itself, but uh, in terms of deterring this invasion, uh, the the tough promises that that Biden made, uh, it's failed. And I think we need to really learn from it and take a wide-eyed approach, whether it's the rhetoric that they use in describing uh, the invasion, the messaging uh, that the commander in chief has sent or failed to send, um, all of those will apply to Taiwan. All of those will apply to the Middle East if Iran continues uh, its march towards a nuclear weapon. Uh, and and this kind of favored, recently favored notion of called integrated deterrence, which really in my mind is a bit of a um, it's a bit of a shell game to emphasize or de-emphasize hard power uh, and by de-emphasizing hard power, justify defense budget cuts. Uh, And and so integrated deterrence also failed uh, because Biden uh, from the get-go has taken a reactive approach and a passive approach uh, rather than dictating or at least attempting to drive the terms uh, and, and, and actually deter. And just on that, if I was out in uh, Ukraine uh, in December, the frustration amongst the Ukrainians, even the foreign service officers in the embassy uh, was phenomenally high because every response to every request that they received from the White House 
was it would be too provocative. Stingers right. are too provocative. Anti-ship missiles to defend the port will be too provocative. So therefore, they did little. Um, uh, now are trying to take credit for doing much more, but on the front end did little. And I think that vulnerability actually was provocative of itself. And Putin thought he could get away with it again. I, I do think weakness is provocative, and that's a lesson we should have learned by now. You may maybe you should spend a couple of seconds explain what integrated um, de- deterrence is meant is meant to imply, because I'm not sure that's clear to everybody. Well, it's it's taking a whole government approach. It's taking economic measures. I mean, obviously, the first you know tool of choice. Uh, for this administration and the Obama administration is sanctions. Uh, That is a tool and it's a powerful tool, but it can't stand alone. Um, It's really meant to emphasize soft power, uh, economic, diplomatic, informational. um, But (laughs) all of those things have to be backed by hard power or they're, they're, they're meaningless. Uh, and, and I think so. Yeah. And soft power, I think is, is over, is, is somewhat overrated as is our ability to utilize it. I don't, you know, yes, we have Voice of America, and, but is that, I don't know that that influences the way Putin thinks. It may influence, if we're doing it right, I'm not sure we are, the way the public thinks, but this is not a place where he think, where Putin thinks, hey, I've got midterm elections coming up, I better yeah. watch it. That's not how this works. Right. Well, and when you have, uh, you know, a dictatorship, whether it's Chairman Z in China or Putin, who frankly doesn't care that much about the suffering of its people, um, then you know inflicting that kind of pain uh, isn't that much of a deterrent. And you know, uh, in the past, uh, he looks at the history of it. It's temporal. It's temporary. Uh, you know, we we in the past, whether it was Crimea, the Donbas, uh, Syria, one we didn't live up to our red lines, uh, but two. The economic pain we did impose was very temporary, and I think that's what Putin was is betting on again. And, and I believe his calculus always has been the uh, between the industrial capacity he would gain in Ukraine, the agricultural capacity, the access to the Black Sea, uh, and you know the ideological win uh, that that he would message on would outweigh the year or two of sanctions that he will have to. I think that was a bit of a miscalculation. The world uh, has responded more forcefully, but still not forcefully enough. And and I still think it's um, you know yet to be determined whether this was the right move for him or not. Well, as a military guy, what strikes you about this war so far, both about what, what, the way the Russians have conducted it, and of course the way the uh, the Ukrainians have conducted themselves on the field? Wow, a couple of points there. Number one, um, you know, look, the administration is patting itself on the back, and the intelligence community on the back, and I think some of that is deserved. I do think uh, uh, declassifying, particularly the false flag operations. Uh, and declassifying a lot of the buildup so that the world, you know, kind of got ready for all of this uh, was useful. But where the intelligence community needs to take a hard look at itself is it's very good at counting things, uh, tanks, planes, movement of trains. It has shown to be not very good at um, determining capability. And what I mean by that is with capability, with those weapon systems comes training comes logistics, comes maintenance. Uh, and, and those pieces we've seen, I think we way overestimated the Russians' ability, uh, will to fight morale, I would include in that as well, and way underestimated the Ukrainians' ability, and we were off. I mean, 
know, when you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying Kiev's going to fall in 72 hours, and here we are almost a month later, uh, that 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 was way off. So that has been striking to me. And then, of course, you know, the the failings of the Russian military. I mean, Putin is is I think one of the world's greatest poker players. He's been bluffing with a pair of sixes for quite some time and has actually modernized his nuclear capabilities because he knows he can get the most bang for the buck there. But his conventional capabilities, his ability to combine um, combined arms warfare in terms of mechanized infantry, intelligence, uh, aircraft, and have all of that operate together has fallen way short. And his logistics have proven to be uh, quite lacking. Um, we're, we're getting indications that actually they're running out of long-range missiles. Their industrial base didn't restock after Syria, and that's one of the reasons they have not established air superiority, uh, not to mention just feeding and fueling and resupplying an army that large in the middle of winter spread over that much geography. You mentioned nuclear, and maybe say a word about that, because I it seems to me he has managed to use his nuclear weapons to deter us more than we have to deter him. He's essentially said, I'm a little crazier, whether true or not, yeah. than my predecessors, so you cannot rely on the doctrine of mad, mutually assured destruction, right. mean that we won't have a nuclear, that I won't use nuclear weapons. You don't know that, so you better be scared. And I think that's been kind of effective, no? Oh, I think he's living rent-free inside of Biden's head. I mean, just to put it <laughs> bluntly. Uh, and, and the administration is constantly in reaction mode. Look, there's the, Cliff, there's the weapons capabilities, right? And, and we can't have disproportionate capabilities or one side or the other for MAD uh, to work for both sides to be, dis- be deterred. Uh, but then there's also the will to use them. Uh, and, and when you, when one side does not believe the other has the will, Putin is going to continue to push. He's going to continue to escalate. Uh, that's why one of the things Biden absolutely has to do is quit taking options off the table, quit telling him what we're not going to do, uh, and say all options are on the table, particularly if you use weapons of mass destruction, particularly if you use ChemBio, start confusing Putin's calculus, making him doubt what we will or won't do. And that's how then uh, deterrence works, because he doesn't want a war with us uh, any more than we do with him. And he knows he would lose. But we have to convince him we have the will uh, to actually engage. And that's uh, how we then uh, get inside his mind for him to, to, to back down or at least stop with the current escalation ladder. Right. He's achieved strategic ambiguity, and we've sort of given that up as a tool. And Absolutely. Strategic ambiguity well said. Like this. The, another, another aspect of this is sending mixed messages, because on the one hand, well, Russia has to be seen as a pariah. On the other hand, you've got Russian ambassador Mikhail Ulyanov in Vienna going, he is the, the quote unquote, and I mean in quotes, honest broker going between the delegation from Tehran and the delegation from the U.S. because the Iranian delegation will not deign to meet with such satanic infidels as us. And we say, well, we kind of understand why you won't. I mean, who are we after all? And so we've allowed the negotiations. It's called indirect negotiations. That's a euphemism for us being humiliated, it seems to me. And we haven't said, okay, this is the end of it. We cannot, Mikhail Ulyanov, you ought to go home and help Putin with his job. And we'll talk to you again later when this is all over. But instead, it seems we're going through. And by the way, and that's the other part of what you, 
the, this neo JCPOA Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that they're which it, it's a new agreement. We'll get to that. It, it would, re, as I understand it, as we understand it from what we know, it will reward Russia, not least financially, at a time when we're saying we're going to sanction you so hard you won't believe it. Right. But we'll take a billion dollars away here, but we'll give you a billion dollars away here. What are you going to do? This is a little incoherent in my mind. Oh, it's just, uh, it's asinine. I mean, just how desperate, really, how desperate can we possibly signal that when the Iranians say, we're not going to even bother to speak to you, we won't even sit at the table with you, we still go anyway uh, and allow the Russians to be the intermediary. And then now you have uh, footage that's been released of the of uh, the Russian ambassador basically kind of bragging um, and pleasantly surprised at how much they got out of the Americans and then saying the Chinese feel the same way. So, I mean, this is clearly desperation to make a deal. The Iranians know it. The Russians know it. The world knows it. And uh, not to mention uh, the our Gulf partners as well. So that is concerning. But really, the piece that concerns me the most is this this notion, if this is is indeed part of the deal, that the um, that the enriched uranium will be exported to Russia, we then not only have them as the intermediary, we now have Putin as the judge and jury as to who's following the deal and who's not, uh, with the ability to release that enriched uranium back into Iranian regime hands. So not only is is it a backdoor for uh, uh, for the Russian sanctions, number one. Number two, the Iranian regime flush with cash will go on a buying spree once again of Russian military hardware, including the S-400 and upgrades that Israeli or American pilots may one day have to deal with. Uh, but then number three, Putin becomes judge and jury of who's following the deal. It's just unbelievable. You almost can't make this stuff up. And with this being such a critical uh, agreement, such a critical national security nuclear arms control agreement. Should this not be obviously a treaty, which means it has to have congressional yeah. consent in some form? That's right. Uh, is well, there anything Congress can do to? Uh, and it's not to. I, I would think that even among Democrats, there should be a thought of, you know, what we're not here as a potted plant. Something like this, we shouldn't just say. Wow, that's interesting what the president has done. I guess we accept it. Um, they should say, no, no, we have to have a real legitimate role in this decision. Can Congress do that? Will Congress we, do We that have a now? couple of, of Democrats who are speaking out now. Uh, Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, Elaine right. Gloria of Virginia, uh, and others um, that know this is a bad deal for regional stability and a bad deal for the country. Uh, I led a letter to the administration right after the administration came in over a year ago. Uh, 70 Democrats signed on to it. Um, a bipartisan letter it was 140 total that said any future deal has to incorporate terrorism, missile development, hostage taking and fissile material. And oh, by the way, so it has to be broader, but it also has to be deeper with real sanctions uh, inspections regime. Not this current joke of a you know regime that was in place with JCPOA, where you had to give people a month's notice and you couldn't check the actual sites that had to been checked, uh, the, the the military sites. So seventy Democrats signed on to that. We'll see as they head into the midterms 
uh, politically, whether whether they stick with it. And final point, uh, you know, from Congress's standpoint, treaty versus executive order. Treaty has the force of law. Executive order can be undone by the next president. Uh, and uh, Representative Mike Gallagher and I have sent additional correspondence really intended for the international financial markets and for European businesses to say, listen, every dollar you think you're going to invest in Iran after these sanctions are listed is going to be at risk because this Congress and a future Republican president is going to tear it up. Uh, And I want them to get that message uh, loud and clear. Is there not a problem in that the the Iranian side has recognized this threat and said, okay, how do we deal with it? What's the workaround? And the workaround is something called inherent guarantees. Yeah. Just spend a moment on that. Well, I, I, look, I could tell you from a constitutional perspective, from a congressional perspective, uh, particularly we flipped the House and the Senate and God willing uh, uh, have the presidency in 24. There's a worth of the, the paper that the Iranians have written on. Um, it, it has to come to the full consent of Congress for a treaty uh, for it to, to, to be enforced. OK, just after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you wrote that the United States is now on the verge of losing a second Democratic partner in just six months while our global adversaries have expanded their influence of evil around the globe. And the other Democratic Party you had in mind was Afghanistan. Now, not everybody agrees with that. I happen to. I'm of the belief, I think you are, that we have made significant progress in Afghanistan. Not everywhere, but if you have it in Kabul, for sure, in the urban areas, the Taliban didn't control even provincial care. They were out in the they were out in the boondocks. Uh, you know, yes, they were growing poppies. And right. Yes, they were doing bad things. But I don't know that Afghanistan was that much different than Korea when we say South Korea when we saved South Korea yeah. from the Chinese communists and the Russians world. That was a pretty nasty. South Korea was a nasty place at that point. Let's face it. Um, I'm glad you raised that I, point, Cliff. It absolutely I, I, was. You should talk about it because because I, I think the other thing you think and I think is that the, the the capitulation to the Taliban last August was a an extraordinarily powerful message to Putin and others that you know what if there, if there's something you want now's the time to take it. Yeah, look, I I got uh, multiple messages from the ambassadors uh, and foreign ministries of of some of our key allies that said, look, the entire region has gotten the message that jihad is won and democracy has failed uh, and that the most powerful coalition, it was not just the United States, it was it was uh, 30 other European nations um, couldn't stand up to the Taliban, uh, not to mention the democratically elected government that we had poured billions into. So that was the message that, don't take it from me, that President Z actually was pumping into Taiwan that Putin was pumping in through his propaganda machine to the various states that he has his eyes on and then across uh, the Middle East. So I absolutely do think it had an effect on our adversaries thinking. Now, to your point of kind of the stay or go policy, you know, number one, for those who say it was an absolute failure, look, I wrote an entire book on all the mistakes that we made. <laughs> we made yep, a lot. Yep, yep, a lot of them. Right, a lot of them. But the metric I look at is no 9-11s coming from Afghanistan in 20 years. We had an entire generation, and I tell this to the veterans too, who are so upset, what was it all for? We had a entire generation of Americans who grew up without worrying about planes flying into buildings or suicide bombers going off on school buses, uh, that you know, this is the old fight it forward versus fight it at home. 
Uh, and and look, uh, finally, uh, to your point on Korea, the South Korean army had a higher illiteracy rate in the 1950s than the Afghan army. Uh, and if you look at 70 years of investment, I mean, there's a lot of differences. But the point is, those two, three, four thousand troops to me were an insurance premium at keeping a lid on terrorism over there, while the Afghan army slowly, painfully, often two steps forward, three steps back, built up their capability to take care of it on their own. Uh, that to me, compared to what we have now, which is a Taliban super state. Uh, with all the powers of the state, billions under their control, an international airport, and Al-Qaeda and ISIS, as recently as last week, we were briefed, fully intends to attack us again and are building the capabilities to do so. And now we have no bases, no troops, nothing in the region uh, in order to be able to deal with it. And uh, and tell me if you think I'm wrong. If we had kept, I don't know, 5,000, maybe a few more American troops there, 5,000 NATO troops there, Keeping in mind that even today we have what twenty eight thousand troops in South Korea, yeah. we could have prevented the Taliban from achieving its goals. Uh, kept at least the cities as places where women can decide whether or not she has to wear a shador. Keep children going to school. That's right. Something that that we have some news on today. Yeah. Uh, little girls getting an education and having a, a very good base, uh, say at Bagram, for the Indo Pacific. And by the way, not leaving behind more military uh, armaments, billions of dollars worth, by far than we've ever given to Ukraine or ever will. Yeah, no, that's right. For those <laughs> few thousand troops, I mean, there are more troops in Italy and Spain uh, than we had in Afghanistan. Uh, one, we had the eyes and ears on the ground to keep a lid on the terrorist threat. Two, we had the critical supporting elements. They weren't out pulling triggers. They were providing the maintenance support, logistics support, intelligence support to the Afghan military to continue that fight. But three, Bagram Air Base is a 12,000-foot runway, strategic-sized air base that is closer to the Chinese border than Mexico City is to the Texas border. Uh, and in that western part of China is where they're doing their rapid nuclear expansion with 400 new ICBMs new uh, computer chips and microprocessing plants, new radars, their hypersonic testing, all of which could be held at risk uh, if we ever do have an issue with Taiwan by having Bagram Air Base. And then finally, you know, the, the left and everybody talks about a future green economy. Well, that requires a heck of a lot of critical minerals uh, to power that. And Afghanistan was sitting on the world's second largest known lithium reserves, third largest known copper, and fifth largest, largest known cobalt. So it, it was the only base in the world that we had sandwiched between Iran, Russia, and uh, China, and we gave it away for nothing. And of course, China already controls much of the rare earth minerals in the world. Now they'll control more, and rare earth minerals are absolutely necessary for electric vehicles. And if our electric vehicles are going to be our, our climate strategy, I'm not sure they should be, then we are we are increasing the strategic supply chain to China, which is a national security threat. That's a, one more question in Afghanistan, although I'll let you talk about it more if you want to. But in your sure. book, published in 2014, um, you, I, I, you say I, essentially that both Democratic and Republican administrations didn't have a clear strategy to win the war in Afghanistan, which they should have had, that the goal was just to end it somehow. 
Yeah. Uh, which, of course, as we said, President Biden did in about the worst way possible, though, to be fair, he was playing out a hand that President Trump dealt yeah. sure. by sitting down with the Taliban and saying, and he had at one point even saying, come to the Camp David, we'll have a great weekend here. Wait till you see my badminton court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bad uh, idea. And I've said so publicly, but but here nor there. Yeah. How worried should we be at this point of the Taliban and Al Qaeda, which is connected at the hip, uh, rising again and in the next few years doing something terrible? And then there's ISIS and other jihadi groups that ISIS in particular, because ISIS emerged after the bad decision to fully exit with the, without even a small force left in Iraq. That That's right. A bad mistake, which we replicated, I would say, in well, Afghanistan. I, I, look, I think we should be very worried. Uh, the notion that we can trust the the quote unquote good terrorists, the Taliban, to help us deal with the bad terrorists, ISIS and Al Qaeda, is just laughable. If it weren't so dangerous, uh, we saw the fallacy of that uh, in the the attack on Abbey Gate, and now thirteen more Gold Star families, where we were relying on the, the Taliban to screen for ISIS. Uh, by the way, that suicide bomber. Uh, was let out of Bagram prison just two weeks prior. Uh, I mean, it, it is, it's just jaw-droppingly incompetent and tragic. And then, you know, the Taliban just today uh, reversed its promise that it made to the Biden administration and uh, is not going to let any girl go to school uh, past sixth grade. Uh, so an entire generation of young women, and, and look, that's a humanitarian issue but it's also a national security issue. Look, in, in societies where girls are educated and women thrive in politics and civil society and business, you don't tend to have an extremism problem uh, where girls are repressed, you do. Not to be oversimplistic, but that's a real issue. And then to your point on Iraq, it's repeating the same mistakes. We, but the problem is we have far less to go back and clean it up. At least when we had to go back into Iraq after Obama's mistake there, we had the Kurds, we had the Iraqi government, we had bases in Turkey and Jordan and Israel and northern Iraq. We had access from the ocean. In Afghanistan, we have none of that. We have no bases in the region, no local allies, no government to deal with. Uh, the, the rain, you know, we're essentially reliant on Pakistan to even fly our drones in which is like asking the arsonist for permission for the fire trucks to go to the fire. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's something I'm incredibly concerned. And, and from a congressional oversight standpoint, we'll keep pounding away on this administration to be honest about the intelligence that is emanating, honest about our gaps. Do we even know what's emanating? And, and to stop lying to the American people that we can do this thing called over the rise and counterterrorism, just like we did in Iraq. We can't in Afghanistan. Let's talk about China for a moment, sure. because going back to the Obama administration, you had this idea of, oh, we will pivot to Asia. And there are Republicans, prominent conservatives, who are saying basically, well, that's a good idea. We can't focus on everything. So let's pivot to China and worry about that. And actually, FDD's uh, Ruel Marcorect and count the Council on Foreign Relations, Ray Takai, have a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday on why it's really, really a bad idea to pivot to China if that means, or it's perceived to mean, turning our back on Europe and the Middle East, because what will happen is Europe and countries in the Europe and the Middle East, and we can see this already, will say, if we're being abandoned, we better hedge our bets. That means we better get closer to China, not further, and maybe closer to Russia too, particularly if Putin should win this battle. 
Talk about pivoting well, to Asia. Yeah, I think it's I think that's a um, that's a very fine line to to, to walk. Um, I, I don't disagree with that notion, but I do believe that China is absolutely the existential threat. Uh, and I think that's somewhat reinforced okay, I agree. by this invasion in Ukraine, that the Russian army is not 10 feet tall. Uh, in fact, they're not even five feet tall. They really are not nearly as capable as Putin likes to bluff uh, and advertise. Um, number one. Number two, Europe has to step up for its own defense needs. Uh, enough is enough uh, in terms of basically America subsidizing their social spending with our defense spending so that they don't have to. Uh, and we'll see if Germany actually sticks to its reversal and finally going to the 2%. Um, but one thing I do think you'll see is us shifting our ground forces east out of Germany and permanently uh, into Romania and Poland, uh, perhaps Slovakia and the Baltics. Uh, I am not personally for sending additional troops permanently to Europe. Uh, I think what we have there, if we position them better and the Europeans step up, um, uh, is sufficient. Uh, but China, I'm incredibly worried about. If you look at all of the threat briefings, all of the trend lines, they have stolen their way to the top in yes. terms of missile technology, artificial intelligence. They're launching, Cliff, more rockets and satellites into space than the rest of the world combined, including us. Uh, they will be lapping us within the next few years. They're out building our Navy by five to one. They're building five ships for our every one. Uh, and their Navy is larger than ours, and they can concentrate it all in one ocean. Ours is spread around the world. Uh, so uh, we do need to kind of get our heads out of our rear end here. Um, and the most frustrating thing isn't even on the military hard power side. It's on the economic in that we are funding their military buildup and their debt um, diplomacy with our dollars between Wall Street, Hollywood, sports industry, uh, stimulus checks that, that pass right through Walmart and Amazon, right into their manufacturing, and plus what they're stealing from our universities and academia. Uh, historians are going to look back on this and say, yeah, you know, you knuckleheads built this uh, built this, Frank, or you at least you, you facilitated. It. And so as a society, we need to wake up that they are in a cold war with us. They intend to replace us. Uh, and we need to begin thinking about it like we thought about the Soviet Union um, uh, pre-1990. Well, I mean, disentangling our economy from China's is not going to be easy. No, it's not. That doesn't mean the effort doesn't need to start somewhere properly with anything strategic. Sure. I think another lesson of this, I think this is, you're right about this in terms of NATO, but not just NATO, everybody, including the Taiwanese, our message should be, you, our allies need to learn to defend themselves and we'll do everything we can to help you That's do right. that and to back you up. If that means turning you into a porcupine, Taiwan, we will. We could have turned Ukraine into a porcupine. Case people don't know what I mean. That means difficult to digest. Yep. But uh, but you but we're not your Praetorian Guard. Right. But we're here to help you in all. We'll, we'll help you with training. We'll help you with weaponry. We'll help you in every way you can. But you take responsibility for yourself as well. We can't do everything for everybody at this point. Now I think that means for Taiwan, by the way. They also need to raise their military spending. They also need to be more like the Swiss. Everybody serves. Everybody serves for longer. Everybody's ready to go out in the street if they need to. All kinds of things like that. And maybe we have a chance to do that with NATO because up to now, as you know, 
And then, you know, they, NATO members thought, hey, getting into this club is great. I don't pay dues and I get protected. That's not the way it's, it, should, it should work. And not anymore. We can't do that forever. The Taiwanese standpoint, I 100% agree. Under President Tsai, uh, they are making some important steps. Uh, they passed laws last year to, to reorganize their National Guard, their territorial defense. Uh, they are actually in some, some very uh, robust discussions with our National Guard uh, in terms of how we can help, uh, both from a training but an organizational standpoint. And we can do things, um, you know, in terms of helping them with natural disasters, humanitarian assistance. We can do all kinds of things uh, that the National Guard has authorities to do to help them. But uh, you're right. They have to increase their defense budget, and we have to stop dragging our feet uh, within our bureaucracy of giving them the arms we need, because as long as the administration puts fear of escalation or fear of provoking as their driver of foreign policy, they're going to keep giving both Z and Putin space uh, to, to move into. And both of them are going to move until they meet, meet steel. All right. Two more topics. The first one quick, the second one as long as you want. I just want to mention that North Korea is preparing to te- soon test, we think, a-, a nuclear weapon. And that also should be instructed because way back during the Clinton administration, w- the-, the belief was we solved the problem of North Korea through diplomacy. We had a deal. We had an agreement. It'll prevent North Korea from getting nuclear weapons. We gave them huge amounts of money. We gave them peaceful nuclear reactors. And of course, they built nuclear weapons and are working on better and better missiles to deliver them, while we have not kept up at all since uh, the Reagan or the Reagan George H.W. Bush era with missile defense. We've pretended we'd have, but we haven't spent money on it or kept up the advancement. So a word on North Korea, and then I'll give you an exit. Well, question. and we also made some bad investments, uh, and, and we could probably spend a whole pro- podcast on defense procurement reform, uh, but we made some bad investments as well that didn't work. Some of them had to start over. Uh, you're, the Obama administration basically scrapped it. Oh, oh by the way, I think one one point that's left really been left undiscussed in Ukraine is is the the missile shields that the Obama administration pulled out of Eastern Europe back then as part of their reset with Russia. I mean, you know, another one, just yet another incidence of Putin pulling the wool over people's eyes. So I, 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 I just want to remind people what happened there, because yeah. we had what the idea was that we had we we're going to have missile defense there that only directed against Iran, but essentially Putin said, no, it could be used against me if I wanted to send missiles and hit American targets. And I get that. I get to do that under mutually assured destruction. You can't stop me from that. But we should have already had mothballed the whole idea of mutually assured destruction once the Soviet Union collapsed, because Putin, that's my view on that. Well, but, but, you know, and the effect was, you know, Obama conceded, pulled it out of Eastern Europe, uh, and meanwhile, so so score one for Putin there. Uh, and then meanwhile, we're cheating on the INF treaty and deploying, um, you know, basically cruise missiles and intermediate range nuclear capable missiles in violation. So the Trump administration was absolutely right to scrap the INF because of Russian violations and to scrap the the Open Skies Treaty because of Russian violations. But but back to North Korea, you know, once again, we can't let the wool get pulled over our eyes. I think we need to go back to a full sanctions regime. We need to go back to actually uh, uh, working to intercept ships violating 
And I don't think it'll be that, I don't think it'll be as effective as it should be until we start talking secondary sanctions on Chinese firms uh, that are just blazonly and openly violating uh, the UN sanctions. I, otherwise, um, you know, we will face uh, Kim Jong-un with a nuclear capable ICBM, I think in the very near future. Uh, and once he has that umbrella, you know, God help us with what his aims are towards uh, South Korea and regional stability and Japan for that matter. All right. My final question for today, at least, you you were a soldier, you were a warrior, you were a diplomat, you become a member of Congress, you spent a few years now. What's what's better than you thought and what's worse than you thought? What are your general impressions after a few years serving in Congress? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Could be a whole other podcast. Yeah, maybe that's, a, that's, a, that's a whole other one. Um, look, there's a lot of good stuff that actually gets done. You know, drama and discord is what makes the news, right? That's why, you know, you always hear about car wrecks on the news. Um, being on armed ser- the Armed Services Committee, being on the Space Committee, uh, to me has been incredibly rewarding. We have a bill that actually is almost guaranteed. It's moved the last 60 years. And there's a lot of things you can get done with that. Uh, everything from pharmaceuticals and, and, you know, putting made in America provisions in for all of the pharmaceuticals, that we buy to bring those supply chains home to the critical minerals that we were talking about, to uh, our industrial base, computer chips, uh, but even also things that are near and dear to my heart, like uh, taking care of Gold Star families in a better way. My first three provisions uh, that I passed through the defense bill were were for Gold Star families uh, and taking care of those that have sacrificed everything uh, for us. So that has been, uh, Cliff, enormously rewarding. This is going to sound just phenomenally partisan, but it's the reality. On the downside, Nancy Pelosi continues to frustrate uh, and infuriate me on a regular basis. (laughs) Um, Everything is about politics uh, with the speaker. uh, And to watch her put in poison pills into legislation that should sail through like, for example, the Violence Against Women Act that's been reauthorized for decades. It passes through her office and she puts gun control and religious provisions in there, knowing then that Republicans either vote against it and she has her attack ad, you know, Republicans against women, or we vote for it. And now, you know, we're, we're sideways on, with our Second Amendment um, um, issues. She does it all the time. She just did it with the CHIPS Act. Um, which is this uh, uh, initiative to bring our semiconductors back home. Uh, It passed through the Senate last summer. Uh, Similar provisions through my committee of research technology passed through the House last summer. We compromised. We did what the American people expected us to do. She sat on it until Build Back Better failed. And then she tried to add kind of a backup plan uh, into that, poison pilled it. And, you know, and and forced us to vote against it. That kind of stuff. uh, I wish I could articulate better to the American people. It's just raw, naked, uh, ridiculous politics that are bad for the country. I can't wait to flip the house and send her packing. It's been way too long since I've had a chance to talk to you. Glad that I got to do it today. It's been (laughs) fun. I've I've learned as I always do. Uh, So, again, thank you for your service. 
Uh, and thank you for being with us today. And thanks to all of you as well who have been with us for this discussion here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.